an artist should not be concerned about the audience. When I look at a news report or when I look at history, I'm going to have a visceral reaction to the moment. And so as an artist, we are not obligated by the public. We are obligated by our own sense of humanity as full human beings. And I think if you can keep that at the forefront, you can you can maneuver yourself through the world and not feel threatened by bringing any challenging work to the forefront that's going to help us grow as a society. Welcome to the Passionate Painter Podcast. I'm your host, Caroline Italia Carlson. Whether your art is a full-time career or your side gig, if you are passionate about creating art, this podcast is for you. Don't worry about taking notes. I'll do that for you. And you can find them at passionatepainterpodcast.com. Welcome back. In this episode, I have the pleasure of speaking with American artist Dean Mitchell. I've been enamored with Dean's work since the first time I saw it. The strength of Dean's compositions is undeniable, and the power of his subject matter is captivating. Dean's paintings take you on a journey through layers of social construct, exposing the often hard truth about perceptions in America today. One of Dean's particularly powerful paintings along these lines, titled No Way Out, was recently acquired by the Columbus Museum of Art in Ohio. The painting turns perception on its ear and truly convicts the viewer. You can check out this painting, and if you like, a video of my conversation with Dean in the show notes at passionatepainterpodcast.com slash episode 56. Dean is not only an incredible talent, he's an incredibly nice person. His genuine warmth and generosity of spirit are truly humbling. And I'm so grateful that he took the time to dig deep into our discussion. His insights are gifts that artists need to hear. The interview ran long, so I've broken it into two parts for your convenience. Part two is ready now at passionatepainterpodcast.com slash episode 57. Today's shout out goes to Laura Leonidovna Zverskia in Belgium, whose review says your podcasts are so helpful and interesting. Thank you, Laura. I love your expressionistic paintings, and I'm putting a link to your website in the show notes so our listeners can check you out. Glad to have you out there listening with us. Don't forget, if you'd like a shout out on the show, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. If you're not sure how to do that, you can find a link in the show notes. Dean L. Mitchell was born in 1957 in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and reared in Quincy, Florida. He's a graduate of the Columbus College of Art and Design in Columbus, Ohio. Mitchell is well known for his figurative works, landscapes, and still lifes. In addition to watercolors, he's accomplished in other mediums, including egg tempera, oil, and pastel. Mitchell has been featured in numerous publications, including the New York Times, Christian Science Monitor, American Artist, Artist Magazine, Fine Art International, and Art News. A complete list of Dean's museums, accolades, and awards can be found in the show notes at passionatepagerpodcast.com slash episode 56. 
Dean, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you. It's nice to be here. Thank you. It's great to uh, talk I, I to appreciate you. you staying with me. I've been so busy. I try to do most of everything that people ask of me if it's going to be helpful to anyone. I'm, I'm pretty open to things. I, Sometimes I think it. I think your work as a body of work already in your life, I mean, if you look at artists these days comparing to artists in the past, like Van Gogh, to have this level of success at this point in your life while you're still alive (laughs) is not only encouraging just by your existence, but I think that your body of work gives a lot of people inspiration and hope. I think it's important work. And I thank you for addressing it, for taking that on. Thank you. Thank you. I, you know, I've, I've certainly have in, enjoyed being an artist. And it hasn't been easy by any stretch. <laughs> but uh, as you probably know, particularly when you want to go your own way and stay authentic to who you are as a human being. Yeah. And so it becomes, uh, it can become contentious on both sides of the, of the the spectrum in regards to, to race and cultural identity and, and the type of work that you do and all kinds, there's a lot of layers of complexities that I was unaware of, but became more aware of as I became more aware of what (laughs) art was about and what it encompasses a lot of things. Surprise. Uh, Yes. Surprises. (laughs) Right. Let's start us off for our listeners by having you talk for a few minutes about your education and growing up in the rural South. How did you overcome institutional roadblocks in your early career that really are stumbling blocks for a lot of people? Well, you know, I I grew up in a little town called Quincy, Florida. I was raised by my grandmother. It was a very segregated town. Uh, I was born in 57. So I grew up right in the, you know, in the heart of the civil rights movement. Uh, And so my sensibility of the South was that, uh, and I grew up in a very, very strong African-American community. My Mm -hmm. grandmother was, uh, you know, she went to church every Sunday. We had to go to church. Uh, There were different things. And I had had all African-American teachers for the most part initially early on, but that also changed. But I think that my sense of the world was very shaped by the dignity that, uh, that I was around in my own community, African-American community. Uh, but I also saw a lot of layers of complexity within the African-American community. There was a lot of prejudice amongst people of color, even like complected Negroes and dark complected Negroes. It wasn't that we didn't get along. We did, but there, there was a lot of layers of complexities even within that. Uh, and there was also a certain sense of social class that was also within the Black community that I know a lot of people do not like to talk about. That also exists. Uh, but these are all just kind of, to me, extensions of, of, of racism in a, in a different kind of way that, uh, that infiltrated uh, the psyche of even the African-American community as well. So I grew up with all these sensibilities. Uh, I learned about racism just by the way my grandmother worked and where she worked. She worked for people who had a lot of money. She worked as a cook and, and a cleaner in homes. And, and I was unaware that we were poor because most of us, we lived in the black community. So we did not have privy to go over to the, to the white community to see what they owned. Uh, but as we got a little older, we began to ride our bikes. And I began to see the enormous discrepancy of wealth 
within that community. Uh, a lot of the people there were uh, invested in Coca-Cola, had a lot of Coca-Cola money there, ex- uh, extremely wealthy. Uh, they had huge mansions and stuff. And so we lived in a small little block house. Most of the people lived in wooden houses and stuff who were African-Americans and worked in tobacco fields and different things. So I also worked in, in those fields as well to help my grandmother pay bills and different things. And a lot, there was a lot of strong people in the black community, but there was also a lot of uh, alcoholics. My uncle Ben was was an alcoholic, very talented musician, could really sing, uh, but saw no opportunity. So uh, when you when you grow up seeing someone who was so talented and very handsome, very very charismatic, you recognize that opportunity has a psychological effect on, on how you move in a society. And I was very, very much aware of a lot of things growing up. And, and I was always constantly analyzing my environment. And my grandmother was always saying the best way to get out of something was to educate yourself because she felt like an education could free you. Just because somebody puts information in front of you does not necessarily mean that it's true and that it will serve you well to move forward in a culture. So you are to look at things. It doesn't matter that it's in a book. There's been a lot of lies in books, as we all know. So just because it's in a book does not make it true. But assessing your environment and looking at the world around you that's right before you is how I look at things and how I maneuver myself. And that's how I've, I've uh, emerged out of poverty. That's, that's really how I, I've emerged out of poverty. Well, I think that's true. And it's sad to say that it's taken me so long to figure out where the gaps were, these huge gaping holes in history that we weren't taught in school. And I first say officially became aware of my white privilege. <laughs> I was speaking to body trauma psychologist, Resma Menachem, and we were talking about how, yes, in fact, white privilege exists by default in all white people. And it suddenly hit me that, and I told him that, I said, you know what, I think I, I suddenly get this concept, basically that I can wake up in the morning and choose not to think about the issue of race. And simply the fact that I have that choice right there is privilege. And he said, yeah, there's a sense now of you get it. Yeah. There's a sense of freedom there. Yes, absolutely. Whereas yeah. it informs and it's interwoven with everything, I think, in the daily experiences of a person of color. They have to factor this in. It's, it's, it's there. It's funny because you're saying this. I, you know, as a child growing up when I was like six, seven years old, I really didn't have a real heavy sense of it until we got a television. And the television became a kind of information highway for me as a young boy watching Martin Luther King give his speeches. My grandmother was, she was just, we were, we were all locked in whenever he was on television giving a speech and as well as JFK, John F. Kennedy and other political leaders, but mainly uh, Martin Luther King. And uh, my grandmother would pace the floor, pace the floor. She couldn't sit down while he was talking. And she said, they're going to kill him. He's too righteous. She said, he is too righteous and he is a righteous man. And she said, they're going to kill him. I said, Grandma, don't stay that girl. She said, baby, they, they're going to kill him. You know, she was just constantly worried about him every time he, he would give a speech. She was just, she couldn't sit down. She couldn't yeah. sit down. I, still, I can still see her doing it. Wow. And I was, you know, a very young kid watching this. 
Now, uh, she had a really big influence on your life. Absolutely. And you've definitely persevered through a lot of rejection, you know, experiencing having to climb up out of, as you said, out of poverty. And even your junior high school art teacher, it seems he was a big encouragement on you, but he told you that you would need to pick a side in order to succeed. Right. Yeah. So yeah, he, he talk about talk about that for a minute and how you <laughs> moved forward successfully on your own terms, gaining recognition and entry into galleries and museums. Well, it's it's funny. Um, I think that I, again, you know, I grew up without my father in my life, who is now in my life. Uh, and I have a great relationship with my father now. I, I love him. My kids love him. But, you know, he never accepted me when I was a boy. I knew of him. I knew he had done really well in business. And I felt that I felt rejected by him. And uh, whenever you come to town, because he, he lived in St. Pete and uh Kids would say, oh, there's your dad. And so I always felt rejected by him. And so I thought, well, if I do something with my life, maybe he'll love me. But that rejection, that rejection, when you get rejected by a, by your own father, there is, there is no thing deeper than a parent rejecting you. I so the fact that I get rejected in the art world <laughs> is a piece of cake. Yeah. So, um, and growing up working in tobacco and, and, and trying to uh, have, you know, a little financial stability for, for my family helping and so forth. So I had enough rejection and hardship. So the art world, you know, as far as I'm concerned, Mr. Harris was saying, you know, you gotta, you gotta pick a side. And I, I just kind of laughed. I actually laughed. I said, that's ridiculous. He said, no, you just don't understand. He said, but you will later. Did he mean and that you have to pick specifically what would be considered black art? Right. I had to pick a side. Uh, he said, your problem is, he said, look, your problem is <laughs> you're really talented. He said, you're really talented. And uh, he said, but you, you want to do things your way. This is not how it works in American culture. It just, this is not how it works. You know, in order to get the right connections, in order to get the right, to have the kind of certain kind of political aura or whatever it is to be black and all this stuff. He said, you're going to piss off, you're going to make the black people mad and you're going to make the white people mad because you're not going to exactly do what either side wants. And he said, that's going to be, it's hard to be your own man that way in this country. And I said, but Mr. Harris, I'm doing art. What's I got he, said, you, you, he said, you will see. And boy, has that day arrived. It has arrived. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I am my own man. Uh, in fact, uh, I have had wonderful people in my life, like the Harris's, who took me around as a young kid, along with others. And he, were, he and his wife uh, were... Two white, you know, these two white people taking us around. We were the only black kids at this art show, and he was helping us. And, and they were criticized on both sides of the fence here, you know, because there was a lot of mis you got to understand there's a lot of mistrust between both sides. So, but in spite of that, he still helped. And so I learned, I learned in that lesson not to assess people totally by their race, but by their character as a human being. And throughout my life, have I ran into people who are biggest and racist? Absolutely. <laughs> you know, but the bottom line of it is I cannot allow myself to be constantly monitored by what Toni Morrison referred to as the white gaze. And so I decided I'm going to be a full human being. 
And you either accept me on that or you don't. And that's okay with me. <laughs> that's okay with me. I mean, I love people on both sides of the fence and, and there's craziness on both sides. And so in regards to race, uh, and it's not that, you know, that I, I'm aware as people of color, we have certainly suffered uh, inhumanely. I'm very much aware of that. And I have had my own suffering uh, with certain aspects of, of society growing up poor and trying to merge into the art world. The art world is full of a lot of layers. There's a lot of complexities to it. And I have looked at every angle. I've had to look at every angle to move forward because, you know, there are people who are on foundations and there are different grants and different things. I apply for those kinds of things and realize that certain people are looking for certain things. And sometimes what you're doing does not appeal to them for whatever reason. And that's okay. They have their own agenda for what they think is great. And that's okay too. So I, you know, I look at rejection as, another way for me to move forward, not to hold me back, but to look at every angle and say, well, this particular angle is not going to work for me. I have to find another way and not be predicated by what somebody's judgment is all the time. Uh, I have to figure out a way to build financial resources to be able to move forward without, without caring about such judgments. And that's very freeing. It's very freeing uh, to, to be able to do what you want in spite of what either side is saying to you about what you're doing. But I feel that what I'm doing is true to me. It resonates to me as a human being, and I'm going to keep moving whether someone likes it or not. It's not my issue. My issue is to stay true to myself, and the world is big enough where sometimes people come around later who did not see the full picture of what you were doing. Sometimes that happens much later. And so I, I've learned to just stick to, to who I am as a human being and, and move forward and, and just look at people on an individual basis. Uh, and there are some people who are, if it been enormously wealthy, who have helped me, who have purchased my work. And there are other people I've met who have been enormously wealthy who was not interested in what I do. I didn't take that rejection as uh, they just had a different way of looking at what they wanted for their collection. And so... Uh, I just kept moving regardless. And you run across people who are, you know, like-minded in some way and, and see what you're doing as, as serious merit and will begin to support you. And rejection does, does not all me, always mean that the work is not deserving. It's not of serious merit. And I have read enough about art to know this because there are artists who, as we know, have been, re you know, when I think about Thomas Aiken's Gross Clinic uh, done at the age of 30, it was rejected by the National Academy, these, these academias of art, you know, and they had a lot of power. But we all know that that is a masterpiece in American art today. And so those kinds of stories give me hope that just because uh, someone is viewing something for the moment does not mean that history may come back and revisit what you're doing. You may not be as popular or you may not be at the top of the pyramid uh, doing this political you know, movement in art. Uh, but down the road, you're going to have a whole new group of historians who will look at things with a different lens. And so the politics will not always be the same. And so the work you will be doing will be viewed differently. And so hopefully I have tapped into the human condition and not just race. Uh, and this is what I'm after. I love that. I love that about your work and how you put together these complex images that have layers 
you know, the Civil War soldier is one that I'm thinking of where he's got yeah. this apparatus around his head. Yes. Now, how yes. I, I that was in Pre to West uh, this past year in Oklahoma City. And it was a commentary piece about uh, about slavery and also, again, the neck being uh, with the George Floyd issue yes. uh, is it, it was a part of that layer, how black men were hung too. And, and this kind of slave apparatus thing was used to keep them from running away. It would stop them from being able to run through forests and trees and things. And it was a very he- heavy instrument. I was going to say, it looks heavy. Yeah. And the fact that they fought in the, in the Civil War for, for their possible freedom. And I say possible because they had no idea what these what these men were going to do once the war was over. Were they really yeah. going to be free or did they just go right back to slavery? Right. Uh, and so there was no guarantee for, for them at all. So but still, they were on the front lines uh, uh, for freedom and fought to, to, to equalize, to, you know, make things equal for people. And even after all that, you know, uh, if you look at the history of, of the military, even in this country, uh, Buffalo soldiers, you can go, you know, yep. World War One or two. And you can in some of these men, uh, then the things that they went through uh, to get recognition for their the Tuskegee Airmen. There's yep. all there's a lot there's a lot of layers of history in, in that. And so, you know, I know I got a lot of attention at Preta West, because if you know anything about Preta West is. Uh, you know, it's a very interesting show. It's about the West, and uh, it's also a lot of romanticism uh, in the show, which is nothing wrong with it. Uh, but, you know, trying to have a different kind of cultural conversation about America, uh, particularly a, a difficult conversation about Black men in America and how they help build this country and, and honoring them in some way. And also to look at the brutality of slavery. So I wanted that instrument around his neck and along with the military uniform to, to, to show power, power and uh, also uh, the way they were discriminating and treated basically as subhuman as animals. Uh, and that was a horrific thing. Uh, and we, we do need to have those kinds of conversation. And I think artists can bring a visualness to it to, to make people question it. Uh, yeah. Not always about race, but the human condition and how we treat one another. So that's so I'm glad you brought that painting up because oh, yeah. I'm in a show now uh, that's called Encounters. It will open in December at the Huntsville Museum of Art. And the curator has selected 32 works. And that was one of the works that he chose for the exhibition. I sent him a large body of work. So I was very thrilled that he chose it. And, and in fact, I didn't expect it to sell at pre de West. This was a selling show because I know it's a very conservative market. And I wanted the work back, quite frankly, but I wanted it seen. And I'm glad I have it back. I don't plan on putting it on the market. It should I be in a museum. I'm trying to show it as, in as many museums as I possibly can to, yes. to stimulate conversation. So. Well, and I think that your art does serve as really a portal to that discussion. I really believe that specifically your recent paintings admission, not a recent painting from 2003, but No Way Out, Mm -hmm. that was recently acquired by the Columbus Museum of Art. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, And that is a very inspiring story, how it was picked up and it was followed and kind of curated into the museum by supporters and Mm -hmm. collaboration. And talk about that for a minute for me. And the painting itself, which I shared with my husband this morning, and he also made the comment that you would expect, 
from the perspective, which we'll mm-hmm. talk about in a second, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> but how you choose to use paintings to lead people into really a healing process in their perception of current social constructs. You know, uh, a lot of it is based on my own ex- experiences as, as a person. Uh, I've gone into stores and have people follow me, <laughs> you know, thinking I'm going to, to take something. Uh, and I have people, cl- you know, clench their wallets on elevator. I, you know, <laughs> I've gone through the, the, the gamut. Uh, and so, you know, I know about the imprisonment of, of Black men in jail and, and this kind of thing. But what I was really after with No Way Out was the perception of the black male. And it was No Way Out because it seemed like no matter what we did, we were still and we were in jail in some way psychologically, though not necessarily the physical jail. Uh, So when I did No Way Out, I knew by putting him in a box, uh, which is what people try to do to me as a painter. They try to put me in a box. They want me in the black box, you know, <laughs> and I don't want to be in the black box. I want to be free. So, you know, when you look at No Way Out, uh, I first presented this painting at the Charlotte Street exhibition in, in, in Kansas City. It was a grant that I received from the Charlotte Street Foundation. And the critic really went after it and, and really talked about the work and, and actually picked up pretty, pretty quickly on the concept which I was thought, hmm, this is interesting. He actually picked up on my concept. And most people didn't. When they see it, they think this person's in jail. Right. So when I first showed the work, it was at Brian Gallers in New Orleans. And uh, at the time, I didn't know that there was an attorney that came over to me. He said, tell me about this work. I said, well, what do you think it's about? And he went on about the incarceration of black men in prison and so forth. And I said, really? I said, well, he's not in prison. He said, yeah, but he is in jail. And I said, no, he's, I said, you're in jail. The viewer is in jail. <laughs> Good for you. I said, he's free. He's on the lighter, he's on the lighter side of the wall. <laughs> you, know, the, you know, and so he was just so fascinated with that. I said, so because you saw the bars and it was a black man, you just assumed he was in prison. He couldn't possibly be free. And he certainly wasn't finely dressed. So, uh, so that became a, a really good conversation. And he bought the painting right away. He's, he spent quite a bit of money on it. And uh, the next thing I, I look up, the painting is in, uh, is in, it's at the gallery in St. Augustine. I hands my work now. The collector was wanting to sell it. And I thought, boy, I should get this thing back, you know, trying to figure out how to get it back. And lo and behold, a lady had saw the painting at the, at the cutter and had saw the painting sit because the painting was there for maybe two or three years. Was that Kathy? Yeah, Kathy. Yes. Okay. From Ohio. And she saw the painting and it just haunted her after the Joy Floyd thing. She could not get the painting out of her head. And so she called the gallery and she was on and on about she and she was visiting and she saw it again. And she said, I just have to get this painting. So she purchased it. And so she said, but. It, you know, it doesn't belong in my home. It needs to be in a museum. And, and so when I called about the painting, I was curious about, I was trying to figure out how to get it. And, and so uh, Nicole said, oh, no, someone's bought it. I said, you're kidding me. I said, oh, really? I said, what are you going to do it? She said, well, she's trying to get it in a museum. I said, really? I said, wow, that's, what, that's where it belongs. And so uh, we had dialogue. And I said, well, where is she from? She says she's from Ohio. I said, well, what part of Ohio? Columbus. I said, oh, my God, this is too crazy. Perfect. I went to school in Columbus, Ohio. And I said, the first museum I ever went into was the Columbus Museum of Fine Art. 
That was the first museum I've ever gone into. And I went through room after room after room looking for anything that looked like me. And there was nothing on the wall of any people of color at all. And I said, how about we approach them? So she agreed and we approached them and uh, they, they acquired the painting. And so I'm very thrilled. I have not heard any more about it going on the wall or anything else or what's going on with it. I would like to know a little bit. I know that they accepted, they accepted her terms in terms of it going on the wall because she felt like it was a very pertinent conversation. And come to find out her father was involved with the civil rights movement. So there was another connection for her with that. But she wanted to do something to help. She said, I feel like I needed to do something to help. And she felt like this painting would just stir so many different conversations with people. I'm hoping at some point it will make the wall. So, and in fact, I need to check on that and see where that's at. So, yeah, that needs a permanent room, a permanent spot. It certainly does. It it, it really is a good conversation piece about perception of of, of African-American men, because we all know the Trayvon Martin story where where people, he's walking home and, and you're suspicious. We have we've had so many stories like this where we're always a suspect or a criminal in some way. And so and then psychologically, the painting also is in a box. You still see the bars. So though though he's free physically in in sort of a physical way, he is not totally free in the world that, that he is occupying, though he's out there, he's free. But psychologically, Right. Uh, we're well, still we're still being challenged all the time by by the way we look. Yes. And in the painting, the bars are overlaying him and his yes. face and his body. Yes. And even if he's not in there, they're still affecting him and informing his world and how Absolutely. people see him. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. So it's a it's a great uh, I think it's a really good, timely uh, work. And I do know sometimes when you, you know, somebody said something to me about conceptual work. Uh, I had put one painting in the West out at the, the Gene Autry. It was called Echoes of History. And, and the guy was like, oh, my God, you know, this painting. He said, oh, this, this hits me in the face. He said, he said oh, I see a lot of conceptual work. He said, but, you know, sometimes it just isn't well done. He said, but this stuff is well done. <laughs> he said, this is really well done. It makes you really look at it. Oh, know? yeah. Uh, it was very interesting, the conversation, because that's always been sort of the, the, the interesting dialogue with realism. Does it challenge us? Does it move us in the modern world that we now occupy? So I'm very I'm always concerned with that kind of conversation, uh, whether it touches on the moment, uh, because as we know, the artists painted their times, they they engaged their moment in history. And so this is what I'm hoping that when people see his work, they will remember the George Floyd situation. They will remember that that this is linked to history, uh, not just to, for the moment, but throughout American history in regards to, to, to black men and black people in this country in terms of imprisonment and, and freedom as well. Absolutely. So. And I'm sure it will spark those conversations. And so as a white person, (laughs) I also would (laughs) like to get into the conversation. I would and help in some way. And I would like some of that to be through my art because I do like to approach weightier subjects and really bring them to people. I think that is a forum where you can transform the conversation through visual art, uh, among other arts. How can white people really enter this conversation in their own art without feeling their privilege somehow undermines their message. 
Mm, that's a good question. And I guess I don't really know. I think uh, an artist should not be concerned about the audience. When I look at a news report or when I look at history, I'm going to have a visceral reaction to the moment. And so as an artist, we are not obligated by the public. We are obligated by our own sense of humanity as full human beings. And I think if you can keep that at the forefront, you can, you can maneuver yourself through the world and not feel threatened by bringing any challenging work to the forefront that's going to help us grow as a society. Now, if you're constantly worried about, like, for example, I've done paintings that people have told me, you know, you might affect your audience, you might not, probably won't sell that. It seems like the commerce part of it becomes more important than the work. That's always been troubling to me. The work, the human part of what you're doing should be the most important. Am I concerned about making a living? You're darn right I am because I want to keep doing my work. Right. But I am more concerned when I see us as human beings treat each other in such an inhumane way that it just makes me just want to go after it. And it doesn't have anything to do with money. It has something to do like, this is some foul crap. This is wrong. We need to look at this. And we need to look at what we've become and what we are and how to make ourselves better. We all know that when people have a lot of economic power, not all people, so I don't want to put everybody in a box, but we know power. You know, when you say something that someone doesn't quite agree with, who have a lot of power, you know, you know, behind the scenes, people start pulling the strings and trying to do things that, that they know are, are, are not right. Now, you don't have to agree with me, but let's have a civil conversation and, uh, and try to come to some agreement of how we can move forward. We all know, look, you know, even in the art world, there's classism, there's, you know, where you went to school, did you get a degree from this person, did you study with this person, did you, you know, you know, all that is real, people. And if anybody's telling you it's not real, they're not being honest. <laughs> It is what it is. I'm not, I'm not here to, yep. to, 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 to hate on anyone for, for their little social constructs and how they maneuver through the world. But poor people, you know, they need to recognize, look, I tell my kids, and they would say, oh, Dad, that's not, that's not fair. I said, baby, the world ain't never fair. It ain't going to never be fair. <laughs> now, you know, you do what you can to be right. I said, but there are a lot of people not interested in fairness. Uh, they're interested in money. They're interested in fame. They're interested in they're interested in other things because we're very complex creatures. And so, but you know, my thing is, do what you love. And if you if you see something that is wrong and you feel that you have enough talent where you can you can address it, do address it because it, it makes everyone better. Now. Like I said, you don't have to agree with everything, but it, it, it creates the conversation to move us forward. Because if everybody's hunky-dory and everybody's comfortable, mm, there's not any movement. Right. Uh, if you're too comfortable, mm, not any growth. 
when you look at great inventions and, and great things that have happened throughout the centuries, people had to do a lot of failing to make certain yeah. things happen. And so we as human beings, we have to be willing to fail. We have to be willing to risk. We have to be willing to put our emotions aside and use our more rational human side to move forward. Uh, we have to put aside greed and wealth and power if we're going to move into the human condition in a more moral sense. But because we all know that money can corrupt almost anyone if you're not careful, because we're, we're visual creatures. We, we like acquiring things, some of us. And sometimes we do vicious things to make that happen. But at the end of the day, when you do acquire something, was it acquired with honor? Was it acquired with staying true to oneself. And when you stay true to yourself and you do acquire something, you're still free. You're still free. No one owns you. No one can yank the rug from under you because you built that foundation with your own truth, not with someone's wealth, not with someone's endorsement. You built that truth with your own self-wealth about the way you view the world. And so when people come after you, it's okay because <laughs> you built the platform that's yours. It's your platform. It's your voice. It's, it has not been predicated upon one gallery yeah. uh, controlling you, one gallery saying thus and so to their collectors. They see the work somewhere and I've had galleries want an exclusive. No, you cannot. No one can own me that way. That's too much control. And so people don't always like that. Even galleries, some galleries don't like that. And so they don't pick you up. And I'm fine with that too. But you can't own me that way. I need my freedom, you know. So that's the way I roll. Uh, and I feel good about, you know, what I'm doing as a human being and just trying to make the world better in my own small way uh, with my talent as best as I can. And if I can inspire someone and help someone along the way, Yes, I will. I'll try to do that as well. You know, so and at the end of the day, I'm not going to live forever. And when I'm almost at that point where my life is ending, I don't want to look back and go, God, I did a bunch of stuff I didn't like. I did it because I, I thought the art world would like it. And I thought the black people would like it. I thought the white people would like it. I, I don't want to be that. I'm going <laughs> to I'm going to do what I want. And if you you like what I do, great. If you don't, that's still great too, because you may like someone else's work. So I'm all, I'm all good with that. There's room for everybody, as my, my late friend Bob Raglan would say. There's room for everybody. This wraps up part one of my interview with American artist, Dean Mitchell. Part two is available now at passionatepainterpodcast.com slash episode 57. Don't forget, if you'd like a shout out on the show, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. If you're not sure how to do that, you can find a link in the show notes. It helps others find the show too. Until next time, go make something. <laughs>